Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, and welcome to another fantastic episode of History Hack. I'm going to hand it over to Alex, who's going to introduce our incredibly interesting, knowledgeable guest who has written a new book, which I am dying to know more about. Alex. Nina, hello. Uh, in case you hadn't noticed, Nina's with me. Uh, she basically flung herself into the lineup of this podcast going, me, 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 me. Uh, <laughs> I did. I did. It, <laughs> it was not classy at all, uh, but it was, it, it was endearing, as you always are. <laughs> uh, we have with us today historian and author Tony Burton, who, as you said, has got a magnificent new book coming out. And Nina, why are you so excited? What is the book about? Well, what can I say? Um, one of my all-time favorite Victorian people, uh, Isambard King de Brunel, and his equally amazing father, Mark Brunel. So this is brilliant. It's called uh, Tony. Hello. Hello there. It's called, isn't it, uh, Brunel's father and son? Um, it it is marvelous. Um, should we tell people why? Brunel is such a big deal. Uh, let's start with Isambard. So in a 2002 BBC poll, they asked 30,000 people who the greatest Britain was. Uh, actually, we mimicked this poll um, last year or during lockdown. And he was named number two Isambard Kingdom Brunel, wasn't he? So it's pretty safe to say that he's a well-known figure in British hi- history. Um, why did you want to tag in the father as well? Well, you know, geniuses don't appear from nowhere. And a lot of his early work was amazingly influenced by his father. Some of his greatest achievements actually were down to his father. Um, You know, it wasn't just Isambard. He started off as a junior member, in effect, of Brunel and Son in his early career. And we can talk about that later. But what I want to show was that, A, his father was amazing as well, and B, the influence he had on Isambard. Well, let's do it. I'm going to hand over to Nina because she knows the subject so much better than I do. Because Nina's, Nina's got a list uh, of questions uh, yeah, to sure. try and unpick what you were saying about, like, as you say, the father of made the son. So tell, let's get into Mark, Nina. One of my first questions was noticing, of course, that Mark Brunel's background is incredibly different from his son's. He's a Frenchman and he's a royalist and he's born in a small village in Normandy in uh, 1769. So, Tony, how does he go from being this boy in a small town to becoming an engineer? Well, he was always interested in practical things as a boy, and he got himself into the Navy, into the French Navy. 
um, where he learned the art of navigation. And you can tell how brilliant he was because one of the tools of navigation is the quadrant, which is a form of sextant, which you use to measure how high the sun is above the horizon and tells you what your latitude is. Um, so it's the next navigator. Um, so actually, no. um, he actually made his own perfect oh. instrument to take with him when he joined the Navy. When he came out of the Navy, of course, the French Revolution had started and he was a royalist and he wasn't averse to making his views known, which made him extremely unpopular. Um, and in fact, put him in risk of visiting Madame Guillotine if he got too verbose. So he went into hiding ah, with another family. Right. And he had to remain in hiding, but, I mean, he had company. There was oh, a young sorry. English girl called Sophie Kingdom had been ah. sent over to learn French. Why the family thought it was a good <laughs> idea to send her in the middle of a bloody revolution in order to practice her languages, I'll never know. But oh, they dear. did. And, of <laughs> course, the English by then were the enemies. That's so outstanding. She was also held up with Isambard, and clearly they got on extremely well. In fact, they fell in love. Ah, yes. I know you're full of questions about Sophia, aren't you, Nina? I am. I am. But um, before we before we return to her, and I'm I'm definitely intrigued because, of course, um, you know it takes it takes two to raise to raise children. Um, Indeed, it does. So what what can you tell us about other than the, other than the appalling decision on the part of her family to send her to France? <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? French. I mean, we don't know an awful lot about her. Yeah. Um, I mean, she had a very rough time in France because she eventually was sent to a convent. In effect, she was um, imprisoned there, oh, where where there was where she was almost starved to death. And it was only at the fall of Robespierre that they granted an amnesty to English people there, and she was able to go home, by which time Isambard had managed to escape France with slightly forged papers and make his way to America. Indeed. Where en route, he met some other Frenchmen who were surveyors, not apparently very good ones. And... um, Anyway, it was sufficiently good for them to be able to get a job together surveying a canal. Oh. Um, a canal in, um, in, in America to, to link the Hudson River to Lake Champion, the Champion Canal. Oh, yes. so, and, of course, as a navigator, I mean, navigators, in, in essence, are doing directional finding, which is much the same as surveying in many respects. And he soon became the leader of the whole expedition. And it was he who mapped out this this canal, which wasn't actually made until later. But he gained a reputation as being rather a clever chap. And he also, he, I mean, he'd always been sketching buildings as a kid. And um, one of his companions was an architect who submitted uh, a design for the Capitol building in Washington. Oh, excellent. And Isambard thought, that's a good idea. I'll put a design in as well. Of course. Which was accepted. Ah. But it was too expensive. Of course. So it was never built. So I, you could have had a White House, uh, which was designed by Mark Brunel, if only uh, that had enough money. 
I'm so disappointed. This is the t- this is definitely the thing that happens with magnificent architectural projects, not just in the United States, but of course yeah. everywhere. But very dis- how disappointing in my but mind. But the basis of a design was used for New York Theatre. Oh, I had no idea. Which burnt down. So we oh, can't look oh. at that either. Because <laughs> no, no, oh, well. New York, she was all ready to just like desert her was, and go home. I was ready to go on that <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, well, he, he then, you may be even more interested in know, he became yeah. an American citizen. I, I thought I had read that somewhere, but no, yeah. I, I wasn't positive. And he was appointed city engineer of New York. Well, there we go. There actually, you go, indeed. That's fantastic. And he he, he designed a mm. cannon factory for New York, right. designed defences for the narrows um, between um, Staten Island and Long Island yeah. and various other buildings. And um, along the way, he met somebody who passed on the information that the Admiralty back in Britain was desperate for blocks. Um, these are the blocks that go on ships to run, look out for standing rigging and the running rigging. They're basically pulleys. Right. And exactly. On, on a man of war, there were literally hundreds and hundreds per ship. Gosh. And they were desperately short. And they were all at that time, met, one man would make a block. Oh. Which would be the sheath and the pulley yeah. in the middle. Right. And, isn't, and Mark got to thinking... I'm sure there's a better way of doing it. Yes. And it was while he was working in New York, he began thinking about machines that could do the job. Mm. And he became so determined this was a good idea. He got an introduction to the Admiralty. And he decided to leave for England and persuade the Admiralty that he should build machines for making blocks. Yes. So he came to Britain, Brilliant. in effect, as a political refugee, Right. A Frenchman with American nationality. So, yes. so I'm fascinated by this partly because of his, his amazing innovations, but also because isn't this a fairly early period to design machinery that would replicate yes. something that had been done? In terms of industrialization, we're right. really early, aren't we? Yes, I mean, it's breaking everything down into small component parts. I mean, you look at a block, you think it's quite simple. But in fact, it went through three stages and mm. a whole range of machines. I mean, it was enormously successful. Um, and I mean, by 1808, his machines were turning out 130,000 blocks a year. Wow. That's remarkable. And, and I mean, the, the building's still there. Yeah. Oh, in, I in, the, the original block. There's only okay. one machine left in it, I think, if I remember mm. rightly, mm-hmm. from my last visit. But uh, one of the machines is in the um, the museum. Oh, fantastic! Um, so he then decided that you know he got paid by the admiralty eventually. He <laughs> a government department. He had yeah. to bully them into paying. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. He and, there, uh, though, does he tell us about uh, sawmills and food? Yep, that was his next thing. Mm. Was sawmills, which were powered by an en- by a steam engine. And um, he built one for the Admiralty again at Chatham. Now that's still there. Oh, still being used to this day as a sawmill. I had no idea. That's fascinating. Yeah. But he also built a commercial sawmill of his own. Right. 
And so, I mean, he was, and all the time he was thinking of new things to do. Yes. And he was doing really well. He was doing extraordinarily well until the sawmill burnt down. Oh, gosh, of course. Oh, dear. And thousands and thousands of pounds worth of machinery was lost. Oh. He wasn't getting payments. And just to make matters worse, his bank went bust. Oh, all, all, all at the same time, of course. All at the same time. So wow. suddenly he's got no money. Oh, dear. Mm. And the creditors are coming round. Which we don't know what that is. at this point, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So he, he, he gets, not only he gets sent to a debtor's prison, but well, Sophia gets sent as well. Of course. They both get sent to a debtor's prison. Take care of him. Now, did they have children by this point, though? Had they had? Um, gosh, I'm trying I to, yes, I think Mesmer uh, Bart had been born by then. Yes, he would have been. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, anyway, the thing was that he applied to the government because of all that he'd done for them. And they be- effectively bailed him out. Ah. They so he came back. a lot of money, didn't they? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he was... Um, so, I mean, he, 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 he was still busily inventing things all the time. Right. Including a rotary printing press, which oh, was years ahead of its time. I had no idea. That's one I haven't heard anything about. Tell us about that. That's really interesting. Well, I mean, it, it's the, the basic idea of it is that in, instead of having print on planes, so it's on a rotating block and you run the sheets over, which is the basis for a modern printing press. I was going to and say. He'd invented it, but the precision machinery just wasn't available to make it work. Right. So he, he never made any money out of that one. That's Developed hard. a scheme for preserving leather. He preserved, presented a thing for making shiny wrapping paper for presents. Oh, wow. Yeah. And his big deal came, of course, when he was, it was suggested that they needed a tunnel under the Thames. Of course. And was this related to, because that's such a huge sort of a, a kind of a revolutionary thought, um, was this related to the fact that London at this point is just growing and growing? And so London was growing and growing, and it's still right. um, it was distinctly short of bridges. But of course, there was nothing down um, downstream of London Bridge because that's where all the tall master ships were. Yeah. So you couldn't just whack like a bridge across because right. you'd demast every ship that came up the river. <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds. It wouldn't work terribly well, you know. Yes, well, um, we... and this was the second attempt to build a Thames tunnel. Mm-hmm. One had been started a um, oh, couple of decades earlier by another great engineer, Richard Trevithick. Oh, of course. The inventor of the steam locomotive. Yes, exactly. And so, um, he, he actually said that um, uh, he, he, he was told how much he's going to get paid for it. And he wrote to a friend saying, this will be money easily made. Ho, oh. ho, as it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds a bit optimistic because of course he was an optimistic man. He does sound like it, you know. When I, think, I mean, he was sort of yes. character and a half. Anyway, mustn't get talking about him. Rubby here all day. <laughs> I understand how that would happen? He is. He is also a fascinating man. Now, um, just a, a question about sort of the logistics of something like this. So, first of all, as you as you so so well observed, we've got one bridge. We've got docks with masted ships. You can't put another bridge in. The Thames is estuarial, if I'm remembering correctly. That's correct. And it's also, you know, partly because of that, it's not, not as if underneath the Thames there is a great whopping amount of stone and, you know, hard-wearing materials. It's, it's rather well, muddy. And that was the thing. They didn't uh-huh. know what oh. was under. That was the biggest problem. All right. Um, 
but anyway, the the technology is is fairly evident. What what you do is you you make two great big holes on either bank, right, and then you start burrowing okay. out from yeah. the side. Sure. And um, what you did, you, you you get these enormous great iron cylinders, uh-huh. and you gradually weight with with pointed bottoms, as it were, sharp okay. edged bottom, and you weight it down. It gradually sinks in and you excavate the stuff until you get to the right level. And you, then you can start excavating out. And that will in time become the, the entrance hole. Because the original idea was a spiral ramp coming around the inside, which would take carriages down into the tunnel. Wow. Rather right. like you go up onto a multi-story car park, you know. Right. And then you, yeah, so gradually. You know, you know, you know sort of thing. Yeah. Down in a carriage. But now, his genius was uh, that he developed a new way of tunneling, which was the tunneling shield. Oh, right. And this is partly because of the, the constitution of what's right under the yes. wall, right? So what you have is you've got this big iron thing, which is the size of the tunnel, basically, to be. Right. With compartments in it. And you've got wooden, you've got each compartment holds a man. Right. There's a platform at the back for a bricklayer. So, ah, okay. So what, a, what they do is that the different compartments are covered by boards. So you remove a board and you excavate some material, which shuck it to the back to be right. taken out. And then when you've got a certain way, until everybody's finished up at the same disc, few inches, right. you move the shield forward and it's got a protective roof on it. Got it. Right. And this became the standard technology of tunneling thereafter, in a way. Which is fascinating, you because, know. yes, exactly. And so it, it, was, it was a brilliant idea. I mean, hmm. it was probably the best idea they ever had. That is amazing. Um, but once again, the problem was they didn't actually know what was happening. So they got partway across. Right. And it flooded. Right. Um, what they discovered was they actually had a diving belt go down and find out was that in that part of the river is where ships had been anchoring and over the years the anchors had dug a hole oh no same place so there was was very very little above it just just a whole lot of water yeah yeah, and anyway it anyway they managed to get that drained out um, but the conditions in the mine were dreadful because nobody knew what they were. And there was a lot of um, nauseous gases appearing. Right, sure. I mean, partly because when the water came in, at that time, the Thames was basically an open sewer. Absolutely. Right. So, um, you know, as I say, he was going through the motions. Um, and um, the man in charge of the um, sort of the foreman, as it were, the manager of the site, was overcome by it. And Isambard had been helping Mark out. Right. He was promoted to, to the role of general manager. Right. Oh, that's a good, that's it. So a, he was a big, big step up for the young man. Right. But also dangerous, given that his predecessor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dangerous. Yeah. Illness. Yes. And the second inundation was far, far worse. Hmm. I mean, it, it was absolutely horrendous. Hmm. Um, Isambard was one of the last people to get out. Yes. And he realised that the steps which the, the, up the shaft right. were blocked, but there'd been a separate entrance made because, because stupidly the people who were 
running it had allowed visitors to go down to watch the work? Of course. <laughs> As you <laughs> would, you know, to make some extra money. Oh, and he got to the visitors. Unfortunately, yeah. um, the people at the top had opened the doorway at the top because he was literally swept up and popped out like a cork. Right. So he was and he was safe. Incredibly lucky not to incredibly have lucky. So the whole around. the whole thing came wow. to a stop. Oh dear. Yes. The whole thing came to a stop. So Brunel and Sons now came back to being general engineers looking for work. Right. And Mark was now involved in designing two suspension bridges for um an island just off Madagascar. It's now called Reunion. Ah. Um, it was called Bourbon at the time. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and he built two very successful bridges, which were very strong and need to be because you get um, cyclonic wings there and they had to be able to withstand it. So he had experience of building bridges. So they were getting work between them. Right. And the, the big change came when a job came in. Well, two jobs came in at once. One was for a bridge across the river at Warsaw, and the other for a provincial city at Bristol. Oh, yes, of course. So Dad says, well, I'll have the posh one (laughs) in the capital city, and you can go off to the provinces and design a bridge at Clifton. And, of course, at this point, Isambard had no experience of bridge building at all. No, not at all. So um, he had a lot of help from Dad in thinking about it. So he put in a design. There was a competition. Of course. Which was being judged by Thomas Telford. And Telford rejected all the designs, including <laughs> Isambard's. So they said, um, well, we're going to design ourselves, Mr. Telford. He said, yes, all right. He designed a monstrous thing, which had two towers at river level, which were oh. Gothic, which rose up the full height of Clifton Gorge right. and then had a suspension bridge. His reason was that he designed a suspension bridge at the Menai Straits and he'd had great trouble in stabilising it. He he reckoned that you couldn't build a suspension bridge any longer than Menai. And to go Uh, from Bank bank at Clifton would be longer. So it wasn't being entirely daft. But there was such an uproar, this monstrous thing he designed, that they cut that out and they went to Isambard and said, right, you can design it. Yeah. So he began designing, with the help of his dad, the Clifton Suspension Bridge. And it is a which, huge gorge. I've been there recently. So it yeah. does look like it's a, it looks like a real engineering problem because it it's very steep and the cliffs are very vertical. And so, so I would imagine that, you know, part of the challenge here is figuring out how to anchor it and make it stable as well as what you were saying, which is it's yeah. a fairly wide place to cross. Yes. I mean, you have to have deep hits. But the point is that what most people don't know was that the Clifton Bridge was never built in Isambard's lifetime. That's right. And, and because the money ran out. Right. And wasn't and, there also, uh, wasn't there also a series of riots in Bristol? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, there were, yes. Parliament um, turned down the Reform Act to to give more people the vote. That'll do it. And Isambard was signed up as a special constable. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) I don't think he did much constabling. I was going to say, in his free time, right? Here, we'll start as a special constable. But he he was consulted on improvements to Bristol Harbour. 
Yes. So he was persona non. He was very much persona grata hmm. with the Bristol people. So right. when it came to thinking, well, they've just opened this new, very successful road in Liverpool and Manchester. I think we should have one. Absolutely. To London, of course. So they went to Isambard and said, "Would you like to design a railway for us, please?" Exactly. And, and of course, again, this is tremendously early. How soon after um, the actual, I mean, we, we, all, we, we all remember Puffing Billy and the very early experiments with... Yeah, the early, I mean, the, the first successful yeah. steam locomotive ran in 18, that we know about. Right. It may have been one a year earlier, which is a bit dubious. The one we actually know because it's fully recorded was 1804. Right, exactly. So we're going, uh, Stockton and Darwin was 1825. Right. So this so in is... The eight, it's in the 1830s. Yeah. But um, people all, all, always get this wrong. They will say the Stockton and Darwin Railway was the very first one to have passengers in a steam locomotive, which ah, it wasn't. Right. Because no. they didn't have passengers behind steam locomotives. They only used steam locomotives for goods wagons. And passengers course. had to make do with a stagecoach with flanged wheel pulled by horses. Of course. On the yeah. line, as you would. Of course. So Stockton and Darlington, um, the Liverpool and Manchester was highly successful and it had a new generation um, Stevenson, Robert Stevenson's rocket, um, right. et cetera, et cetera. So now Isambard had travelled on it and he wasn't dead impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> uh, he thought there were two things wrong. With yes. Several things wrong with it. One was that um, the rails weren't far enough apart. Mm. Two, they weren't properly secured. And three, they were the wrong sort of rails anyway. So in terms of the rails not being far enough apart, I know that this, is, this becomes controversial later on in the century with oh, the yeah. different gauges, but... What what was it about? I, I understand if the rails aren't secure and they're not the right material, that you're not getting a smooth, consistent ride, and then that affects your timing. But why why wider? What in his mind? Do you do um, we know you, you, just um, you know? I mean, it's it's like wide vehicles are more stable than, ah, you know, okay. than I mean, you know, the for, for, I mean, I mean, what he realized was that the gauge which had been ch- chosen by George Stevenson. Right. It was entirely arbitrary, really. I see. OK. I mean, it, it's, it all began because um, when he built his first locomotive, it was for a colliery, which is just because the collieries all had these um, horse-drawn railways. Right. Which were entirely right. independent. All, all they required to do was take coal from the mine down to the exactly. river. Right. And it didn't matter if the next door had got different with three foot and yours were five foot. Sure. Nobody cared. Right. They just happened to be four foot eight and a half. Got it. Can, so I thought, well, that worked. So I'll stick with it. Right, of course. Whereas, as, as we know... So that Isambard said, Isambard. well, if we're starting from scratch, what would be the yeah. best? What would we do? Exactly. What would we do? So he said, um, the rails on the uh, Liverpool Menace were mostly on the, still mounted on sleeper blocks, which are stone blocks. Right. The hole in the middle, the right. wooden pegging, which is spiked the whale to. Right. Now, he decided that what he would have was wooden sleepers, but not the sort we know, which go uh, at right angles to the rails, but yes. all the way along underneath the rails. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't The full know. length of the track I would be wooden, wooden uh, sleeper right. tied together by iron ties. 
Okay. So you've got a totally rigid system. Got it. And um, you can't see it, so I'm no point in me showing you anything because you won't be able to see it on the. <laughs> That's true. We'll, no. we'll... But uh, he had a, his rails were called bridge rails. If you think of the shape of a of a sombrero with sort of wide brim in, in profile, right. it's a sort of um, a curve at the top and wide sides. Oh right, okay. that was his thing. And he then proceeded to work out what were the ideal locomotives. Now, one thing we discovered quite rapidly is that Isambard wasn't very good at mechanical engineering. Oh, that's his cool. ideas for a steam locomotive were impractical. Oh. And when one was built, it didn't work terribly well. Right, that is... I mean, fortunately, he had the common sense to engage a, another young man called Daniel Gooch. Yes. Designed locomotives, and Gooch designed highly successful locomotives for the Great Western Railway. So Isambard's main achievements were in designing a line which was going to be very level. Right. Um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He had a couple of major problems. One was um, the big tunnel box. Right. Of course, it had to be bigger than anybody else's tunnel because he'd got wide rails. Exactly. So it was an enormous tunnel. Yes. Which, and, and, um, which also, just to make matters worse, yes, the track was on a slope. Of course. So you have that. And what I was just going to say for, for, the, for, for the folks who are listening is if we think about it, it's not as if it's all level, flat, going across fields to go from Bristol to London, there are quite, there's quite a bit in the way. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a tremendous task to create uh, something that you can put flat rails on and run a, you know, run a locomotive on. Now, a man who turns up several times in the life of Mr. Brunel is a scientist called Dr. Dionysus Lardner. That's a marvelous name. It's a good name, isn't it? (laughs) Everybody should have a name like that. That's Lardner. I shall remember that. <laughs> anyway, um, Don Dionysus Lardner proved scientifically that because of the slope, that engines entering at the upper end would reach a speed at the far end of over 50 miles an hour, a speed which no human being could stand. Right. Because, of course, at this point, when we're talking about transportation and how quickly people are moving, even the locomotive represented... Locomotives were doing 30 miles an hour. Right. And that was considered possibly hazardous. Yeah, that's fast. Going that fast. Anyway. um, It was inconceivable. Right. Brunel simply said, what do you think? And um, 
He just said, air resistance. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the tunnel was a success. I mean, it was obviously an immense undertaking. And there was a rather sad story, but it's almost comical the way it was recorded. And because the, the miners worked day and night. Yes. Building it. And, of course, the night shift came out of work at night. And one yeah. of them came up the shaft and was going back to his digs or wherever he was staying. And he tripped and oh. fell down the next shaft. Oh, gosh. And according to an eyewitness, as he fell, he was heard to say, oh, dear. <laughs> all the things and, and Navi might be saying as he fell to his death down the shaft, I have to say, oh, dear, is the least likely. Oh, dear sounds rather unexpected. One doesn't normally associate. That's a rather genteel phrase for... Yeah. Were people who, you know, men who were working incredibly hard and very yeah. dangerous tasks. But yes, that that does that does make a good story. Ha, remind us, how long is the box tunnel? Because it has to be through, you know, rock and. Um, I have and to look that up if you go. Hole, but it's, I mean, in other words, it's it it. I seem to remember reading for uh, for our purposes. I seem to remember reading that it was the longest tunnel at that time anywhere, not just in Britain but in Europe. No, you know, not true. Not true. Oh, I'm so just, <laughs> please, please correct me then. No, so I'm spreading this false information. Shall, shall I just, do you want me to look it up quickly? Oh, 1.83 miles. There oh, you go. Well, there you go. So, you know, not a, not, you We're know. Operating so, speed now of 125 miles an hour. Woo. Yep. <laughs> there you go. Inconceivable at the time, I'm sure. They would have thought we would just be compressed into nothing. So that's, yep. I mean, how long, if you remember, how long does it take? Because we're talking about years you know, rather than months. Men doing this by hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about um, you know, with explosives. But yes, yeah. I mean, but all having to be bored. But yes, it's tremendous. Um, but the, the other great undertaking, of course, he now had to cross the Thames somewhere along the line. Yes, absolutely. And the place he chose was Maidenhead. Now, he still wanted to keep his thing level. Yes. Well, the banks at Maidenhead are low. Right. right. So, so there's a big gradient change. Yeah. So, what you gonna, so he didn't want to build up a big ramp on either side. No. Norm, all bridges yeah. have been built with semicircular arches. Right. Okay. Okay, because that's the obvious way. It's they're very the Romans had done it. Right. right Everybody right. Had done it ever since. Right. Try circular do. arches. They're strong. They're reliable. Right. Exactly. Isambard decided that the two arches and Maidenhead would be flat or much lower. Very. Now, that wasn't. It seemed it was revolutionary at the time. Everybody thought yeah. it was mad. Of what course. they didn't know was that before this, this is where Dad comes in again. I was going Mark, to say, Mark. Had actually built an experimental section of bridge using exactly this sort of arch at the tunnel site. Right. So, so he was able to tell Isambard, yep, it works. works. It works. And it was still in doubt because when the bridge was finished, they left the wooden centering, that's the wooden right. frame on which the brick exactly. structure is constructed, in right. place. Just in long time. And everybody said, ha, 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 it's holding everything up. Until <laughs> one day the river flooded and all the centering was swept away and the bridge was still there. 
And of course, it still stands to this of day. Course. <clears throat> of course, yes, because as 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 people who who uh, who think about bridges now and think about the process, is that the the point of the arch is just to get it up, and once the actual arch is complete, yeah. the well, center well, really isn't doing anything. But I understand from a from a are we sure this isn't going to fall into the river, taking locomotives with it? I understand that it it provided um, reassurance. Yeah. But, um, of course, the, the other thing, of course, was that um, we think that or it went to Paddington. Well, it did. But yeah. our Paddington Station is the second Paddington Station was built. That's right. Yes. The first one was a sort of very crude one. Right. And Isambard did the um, basic idea for it and has built what I think is one of the world's great railway stations. Yes. I, mean, I, I go to Paddington. Every time I go to London, I go to Paddington. And every time I go to London, I think, yes. wow. What it's a great fantastic. building this is. It's marvelous. And of course, he also designed the 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 station um in Bristol quite a few years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the first station. Meads. Yes, the original um, uh, Temple Meads. Yes. Um, which was sort of mock medieval. Yes. The hammer beam roof. Right, right. It's which there, is also rather lovely. I, I visited it recently, and I know that it's very hard to find um, Brunel's original bits because it's built upon later and yeah, yeah. changed and so on. But you can still see a few little bits. But yes, it is a rather marvelous structure. Yes, and still has the offices in there. Um, yeah. So that that was sort of um, you know, and while all this was going on, Mark had finished the Thames Tunnel. I was going to say, yes, because, of course, that's been kind of in the background. We we, yeah. know, we talk so much about Isimard's project. So he completes the Thames Tunnel. How does he solve the problem of the water inundation? Because I mean, he, simply by, by filling in above the thing and just right. carrying on. Right. And so eventually they reached the point where instead of hitting mud, they had a pong. And ah, they, there we are. They right. Hit the other end. They hit the other, the other end. end. Right. But it was never used as he intended. It was never used for carriages. It right. was only ever used as pedestrians. Right. Walking until the 20th century, and it became used for the Underground Railway. I think I've been to the station where you can still see the configuration of the... Yes, you can. Um, right. I actually, I went, I did a radio program years ago in the middle of the tunnel at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> After the last train had gone. <laughs> I was going to say, yes, but hopefully after the last train had gone. But we're still, um, do be careful, the, the uh, rail's still live. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but not reduce voltage. It wouldn't actually kill you. It'd give uh, no, you a bit of a shock. It would be pretty unpleasant. Now, that's <laughs> there, there are still many wonderful um, paper memorabilia of the Thames Tunnel that you one occasionally sees in yes. shops, and I'm always I'm always fascinated that those things often show very beautifully dressed ladies and gentlemen walking through the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. Um, because as, as you're saying, that was not Mark Brunel's intention. It was meant to be for mm. carriages, and you know the idea was really a bridge, but under the riverbed. As the yes, in, in fact, it had it developed quite a nefarious reputation of many of the. Beautiful oh. dressed ladies were perhaps not quite as ladylike as they might have oh, been. Right. So of <laughs> course it's you're you're underground and you know, walking through and, and it, yes. it, attracts, it attracts the kind of traffic that uh, 
Yeah, it was. It was. Ne- I mean, it, it was never the success it could have been, and and that was really at that point when that completed. Yes. Mark retired, and here yeah. Sophie, um, of course, you know, settled down and lived a very happy life together. I mean, all the reports of them of a very very happy married couple. That's um, great. you know they they were really they seemed to they really it really was a love match between them. It was a love match, yes, because yes. they'd spent quite a bit of time apart. Was it six years just to return? Yeah, yeah, yes, six right at the beginning. Yes, before they met up again together. Boy, yeah, and they So yes, so that was very happy. Meanwhile, of course, um, the Great Western Railway was expanding. Yes, and when it then we come to one of Brunel's great failures. Uh, of which, tragically, there are quite a few, but I guess... Not more than one, yes. But the, the biggest innovator. one was the um, the atmospheric railway. Yes, I'd quite forgotten about that. I mean, basically what it is, is you've got a, a long tube above ground with a slit in the top covered by a leather thing, and you've got steam engines at various points which suck the air out. Ah, OK. And yeah. inside is a piston with yes. a flange... Right. Sticking up through this leather-covered slit to which you attach your train. Fascinating. Which is sucked down the line. Uh, Right, exactly. And, Um, yeah. So So, it sucked from point to point. Right. So using the pressure of the air. Yeah, air pressure on one side and a vacuum on the other. Mm -hmm. Off it goes. And in fact, I've seen I've seen a, a model of it. Yeah. In in which um, there's a chair chair sat attached to it, which is an ordinary vacuum cleaner. <laughs> if you sit on the chair, you can actually zoom down this little into track just from the power of a vacuum cleaner. Wow. Okay. So so what? So this was now. Well, this was fine until winter. Yeah. When the leather throws solid. Oh well, there you are. And um, the no, thing just. It, it lasted less than a year. Oh, how disappointing. Um, so, it wasn't the only one built, mine. It was one in Dublin as well. Interesting. So, and this was for passengers. So the idea was... for passengers, yes. Climb into whatever... Um, just ordinary carriage. Right, carriage. And you go shooting through... You're shooting along, you go. And it's like human beings in pneumatic and... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, my. But yes, I understand that, you know, that the, the limitations of materials, if it if it freezes, then the whole system just... The whole system comes to a halt. And of course, the problem is also, if something goes wrong with the steam, one of the steam in, if it, uh, yes. something goes wrong with a locomotive on a railway, you bring another locomotive. Right. Thing, the whole system come, grinds to a halt. And there you are stuck in a tube. You're stuck with nothing happening. I so it can... wasn't basically a really very good idea, to put it mildly. Yes, yes. I mean, I George think... Stevenson went to look at the at it as much the yes. same time. Right. Just said, humbug. <laughs> <laughs> right. He wasn't convinced at all that this was... Not, not in the least. <laughs> ...transportation that human beings would tolerate, let alone the system. That's but, quite... then, but at the same time, of course, Isambard, his next venture is, of course, the famous occasion when somebody at a meeting of the Great Western Railway during its construction doubted it was possible to have a railway that goes all the way from Bristol to London, to which Isambard, typical bravado, said, why stop there? Why don't we just go to New York as well? Of course. (laughs) And one of the members of the committee, Mr Guppy, took it seriously. 
we're all familiar, aren't we, with the iconic image of uh, Brunel standing in front of the chain to the Great Eastern. Oh, yeah, that's a way down but, the line, yeah. yeah it is. What about his earlier work? So I'm all, I'm nine has put, she's amazed by the Great Western. Uh, so the first steamship purpose-built for crossing the Atlantic. Uh, so how does that come about? Well, that was his new... Um, incidentally, um, Mark had also um, got a paddle steamer of his own. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he decided he would run it, and he decided it was a thing to run an excursion steamer right. from London to seaside resort on the south coast. Which it sounds incredibly sensible. Yeah, I mean, he just bought a, a bowl of boat and had an engine put in it. I mean, right. the paddle steamer's already been invented. Right. Been, first, first successful ones have been in France, actually. Mar- Again, another splendid man, the Marquis Jouffre d'Abin. <laughs> Definitely. But do, do come back and tell us, because I know so much of Brunel's energy then gets directed to these gigantic Atlantic sea ships. And yes, this is where our friend Dionysus yeah. Lardner reappears. Oh, of, of course. course. Mr. Of course he does. Right. And who proved scientifically that it was impossible to build a steamship to cross the Atlantic. Of course, but because, because there wouldn't be in, because there wouldn't be enough space for the coal and oh, passengers. Right. And if you increase the double the size, you'd need twice as much coal. So right. you'd be no better off. Right. So he's Brunel, of course, not being a, sci- a clever scientist, yes. had enough science to recognise right. that doubling the size of a ship does not double the amount of coal you need because. Ah, of course. Ships are supported by water. And right. it's the water resistance, which is two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. Right. Right. Big is better when yes. it comes to this. So having come so to his the- answer was to build a bigger ship. Uh, of course. So I know that the Great Western is, is really quite early. It's completed and it's sailing by 1838. Is that yeah. and there is another that- company set up okay. to be the first to cross right. the Atlantic okay. by a steamship, and they're right. building a ship. Right. And it's on its way. Interesting. And then the people making the engine go bust. Uh, there you are. Yes, it's, it's always so a question. what they do is they buy a steamer. Ah. They've been going on the run between Britain and Ireland. Interesting. Or the okay. Sirius. Ah, okay. So they bring that down to London. And by this time... The, the Great Western is built in Bristol. Yes. And it goes down to London to have the engines fitted. Right. And to be finished off. Right. Excellent. And they're getting ready for the big voyage. Yes. And they're just out on, tri- on sea trials. Yes. When they see Sirius puffing past uh, on its way to America. <laughs> well, actually, on its way to Ireland. Right. To set off for America. Oh, that's very funny. Right. So they, they hastily go to plan B, which is to set off for Bristol. Exactly. So off they go, and they're, they're scarcely out of the Thames before there's a fire in the engine room. Of course. And um, it's not a very serious fire, but Brunel's anxious to find out what's happening, and he starts down the ladder mm. into it, and the fire has buckled. Oh, golly. The iron on the ladder, and he falls. Oh, gosh. Right down into the bottom of the ship. That's a fairly long way, as I recall. A too. very long way. Yeah. But he lands on the chief engineer. Oh, that's true. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, he would be dead. 
Yes, and and the chief engineer uh, does he survive getting? Yeah, he's okay. Oh, that thank um, goodness. So it's, anyway, it's, yeah, but they have to stop, of course, and they have to get Brunel off the yes. ship. Right. Then they have to go to Bristol, right, to, set to make the start. And they're already, I think it's three days behind Sirius. Yeah, right. They're overtaking her all the way. Yeah, but. Sirius has the honour of being the first steamship. The very first. Across the Atlantic, entirely under steam. Under steam. Right. The American ship, the Savannah, had yeah. crossed, but they'd only used the paddles for a very short part of the right. distance. It was essentially... But it was so unusual that when it was puffing along in the Atlantic, yes. a schooner went to its rescue because it was on fire. Of course. Because they'd never seen a steamer yeah, out the, uh, there before. They had no way to understand no, so, but, so the, the Great Western was overtaking the Sirius all the way and arrived right. just a few hours later. Excellent. The Sirius had used every ounce of coal. In fact, there was even a rumour that cabin doors had been taken off and burned. Right. So they turned out not to be true. Do, so they could make but, it But up. the Great Western actually was a success. Excellent. And so his next project, um, he builds the Great Britain. Um, and there's something very innovative about that technology. If a, I, a lot, a lot was do. innovative about that. Yes. First of all, it was going to be bigger. Of course. And there is a limit to the limit to, to the size in which you can build a wooden ship. Uh, exactly. Yes. You, you know, because it just right. structurally can't it do will it. not stand up. Right. And I mean, Already early in the 19th century, the first iron vessels had been built. Exactly. So he, he decided he would go in for iron and he would build a paddle steamer. Absolutely. And um, this was one of the interesting side effects of this was that because of the size of the ship and the engines, the actual crankshaft, there were no hammers. Anywhere forging was with water-powered hammers and you couldn't get any big enough to forge it. Right. So, you've so got the, the shipbuilders went to a guy called James Naismith, who had a brilliant idea of steam-powered hammers, which steam oh, pressure oh, would lift. Right. And so that would that would have solved the problem. But while this was going on, there was a bright young engineer who designed the engines. He heard about a gentleman called Francis Pettit Smith, hmm. who had devised a thing called a screw propeller based on the Archimedes screw. Right, absolutely, yes. I mean, the Archim- Archimedes had devised this screw in a tube, which was used to pull up water. Right, of course. And obviously, if you reverse the thing, instead of pulling water, you'll push water. And if of you course. push water one way, you'll attach you, something right. you'll pull, you, push it the other way. You go the other direction, exactly. And I mean, his first experience was on model boats on, a, on the pond on his farm, mm-hmm. the duck pond. He then built a steam launch, and then he built a small steamer which he took around Britain as an egg to exhibit. Right. And Brunel decided, yep, that's the answer. Yeah. So that'll his new ship would be an iron hulled ship with a screw propeller. The first iron hulled ship with a screw propeller, which set the pattern which lasted well as long as steams were being built. Exactly. Basically. Which is which is amazing. And so between the screw propeller and the fact that it is fully it is a uh, fully metal ship. Um, now, when he uh, it, it, so these innovations are fascinating and, and quite remarkable. But I also remember, too, that wasn't the Great Britain designed very much for passenger travel. Oh, yeah. It had been. But the great 
Britain is it's on a whole other level, is it not, in terms of numbers of passengers and numbers of passengers and accommodation that they have. I mean, right, right. it's got a rather splendid saloon and uh, right. it's really quite ornate, you know. It's the very beginning, isn't it, of turning over across Atlantic travel from being this absolute nightmare of endurance into something like pleasurable. Yeah, I mean, it's not always pleasurable. I, no, uh, but... <laughs> having crossed the Atlantic by ship, I remember Sorry. one passenger disappearing halfway through the first meal and reappearing oh. on the other side. <laughs> oh, gosh, right. Don't forget, the Atlantic can be a bit bumpy. It, definitely, definitely. <laughs> I'm fascinated because, of course, this kind of development then goes on and generates so many other other. Yes. Things and there's a huge cultural impact and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, what happened to the Great Britain? Because it, it does this for quite a while and then... Well, uh, it, it has, it, it's a real problem. Yeah. Um, because they were still going, leaving Liverpool oh, and right. going, going around the north of Ireland. Of course. The captain yeah. made a major navigational error and he hadn't realised that he'd passed the Isle of Man and Ooh. just kept steaming straight forward Oops. and ran into Ireland. Yeah, that's Literally. a problem. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> it is a major problem. So the, the whole ship stuck. Right. They were stuck through the whole of the winter oh, until God. they could refloat it and then brought it back. And the steamship company, which had been formed to um, run the Great Western, hadn't got the money to keep repair it. So they sold it. Right. And um, she was bought up for a fraction of what she cost to build. And eventually, of course, she finished up in Falkland Islands. I was going to say, yeah, she has a series of adventures, but ends up in Falkland Islands. That's right, yes, where a lot of ships ended up. A lot of ships going around Cape Horn come adrift. And um, it's rather like taking a real bang into the guard and saying, oh, sorry, mate, you don't need to end with this one. And, right. Um, yeah. Aucklanders liked it because they've got no timber on the island, so they used to pull exactly. the vessels up into shallow water and use right. them as wool stores. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, you something like that. And then she, but then um, she gets uh, sort of um, interest rises again, and and what sounds to me like a nearly impossible project is she's brought back to she's brought back to Britain, isn't she? From yes. Yes. From the Falklands. That's and right, yes. She was towed back. Right. Uh, Almost yeah. all of her. Uh, right, which is... If you, if you go to Stan, if you go to Port Stanley, you can see the mizzen mast. Oh, wow. Right. So they still have the mizzen They kept that there. Right. A reminder that she was there once upon a time. But the rest of her comes back to... The hull comes back. Right. And so the hull comes back. And um, they've turned her into into what is essentially a museum, have they not? Now That's right. Yes, I mean, what they've done is they've done a complete restoration, isn't it? I mean, obviously the the engines aren't actually powered by steam. No, of I course. Mean, they have done replica of the engine, right? Of course. Um, and you know, and the interiors are as far as possible, right? And but it's it's it's, it's a great place to see. And of course, the important thing is that it's in the dock where she was built. She comes full circle back to her point of origin, yeah. back yes, to which is great. Yeah, the dock where she is, and there's also, if I remember correctly, they've have they they've they put um you know they put a bit of museum there, haven't they? Yes. 
yes. which, you know, because um, Isambard spent so much time there and so many of his projects. Yes. Um, so well, it, I have a personal connection with him because um, oh, when, yes. when, my, when my mother died, um, my family were involved in shipbuilding. Oh, I didn't know that. That's my, my, grand, my great-grandfather, one of three brothers, a company called Riley Brothers, yes. who made marine boilers. Oh, yes, of course. Um, and at the time, the, the SS Great Britain was being um, restored. And so you could buy deck planks. Oh, wow. And then, you know, so yeah. on one, and on one of the bulkheads was a list of Adonis, so my mother's name's there. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, I've, got, I've got good friends in Bristol, so when I next get back there, I'll make a point of, um, of, of going to have a look. Well, <laughs> I think this is, this is a good place to end. I know that the final project, the Great Eastern, is a huge and remarkable, something no one's ever tried to do before. And of course, we also know that it's at that point that Isambard, who's been very ill, that sort of the initial failure of the great of the great eastern is said to have been what what led to his death well, the great i mean the great eastern the great eastern did actually i mean she was launched yes she, she was i mean she she was a mixture because she, was, she had both paddle right it's the biggest ship of her day to finish with brunel his last yes. great achievement yes was to take the great western railway into cornwall with the tamar bridge right um, which is a unique design again. And his last public engagement was to be taken across it on a sofa, on a flat carriage, because he was too ill. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. And, uh, he, his, last, his last Christmas was spent in Cairo with his old friend, Robert Stevenson. Oh. And they both died in the same, within months of each other. Right. The greatest yeah. engineers. Yeah, we're going to leave the story of the Great Eastern because, Tony, we want people to have a reason to go and buy the book. So people yeah. want to know Tony's tale of, of the last part of the story. Then you have to purchase the book. Uh, Absolutely right. Alina will put in our bookshop. Uh, Tony, thank you so much. I, I, no, I didn't know I've had so much fun and she was so desperate to be on this episode. She's a massive I was. And, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I've had a wonderful time. Thank you so much, Tony. I've learned so much from you, all these things that I didn't know. And I am tremendously looking forward to, to getting a copy of the book and reading even more. So thank you. It's been such a pleasure yeah. for me. My pleasure. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.